Welcome to Health Equity Conversations, a series focused on understanding healthcare payment, equity, and how payment can be used to address inequities rather than perpetuate or worsen them. In today's conversation, I speak with Dr. Dana Gelb-Saffron. Dana is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Quality Forum, or NQF. Previous to this role at NQF, she served as a Senior Executive at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, where she was a lead architect of the Alternative Quality Contract which is widely credited with having catalyzed the value-based payment movement among public and private payers nationally. Since 2017, Dana has also served as a commissioner of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. She and I discussed a number of issues related to how quality measurement and payment can address health equity. I enjoyed the conversation and trust you will also. Dr. Dana Gelb-Saffron, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Health Equity Conversations. We're excited to have you. I'm very excited to be here, Josh. Thanks for inviting me. So lots that I'd love to talk about, but before we get into the content, maybe we could begin and you could share a little bit about what led you to your current role as president and CEO of NQF. I've been in the field of quality measurement and improvement for 30 years. Uh, Roughly the first half of that 30 years, I was a measure developer I was focused in particular on patient reported measures, uh, both of health and of care. Um, And then the second half of that 30 years, I've been in a a series of different roles in the private sector as more of a consumer of measures, using measures to try to drive better quality outcomes, affordability and equity in healthcare. Uh, And so when this role at NQF uh, came open, Really, one of the things that attracted me was that NQF had recently published a new strategic plan that envisioned the organization beginning to play in some new spaces in addition to its original core remaining functioning around being the nation's steward of its portfolio of quality measures, beginning to play what I call upstream and downstream from that Uh, steward of quality measures space upstream to where we decide what are the measures um, that we need that we don't have, what's the data infrastructure we need for those measures to be successful, uh, what should be our priorities for improvement based on performance on the measures that we have today, um, and health equity strongly among those areas of improvement. Uh, And downstream to, great, you have endorsed measures. How are you going to put them to work to make care better, more affordable, more equitable? Those upstream and downstream spaces are really what have animated my career and got me very excited. And that strategic plan um, put a large emphasis on health equity, uh, both uh, in our work outward facing and our work inward facing as an organization and with respect to our own employees and stakeholders. You mentioned the strategic plan at NQF. Um, Are there specific ways that the strategic plan was already being implemented as you came aboard or is being developed now to really address health equity? So there are um, two of the 12 goals in the strategic plan that directly address health equity. And one of those is outward facing and one of those is inward facing. Um, And both were already very significantly in motion. 
Um, and we can talk, I imagine we will talk over this time together about some of the specifics of the outward facing work that NQF is doing around health equity. On the inward facing work, we already had a, a really ambitious and robust um, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion roadmap uh, that had begun to be implemented. And now after about a year of my tenure at NQF, we're, we're even further down the road um, and very proud of that work that the organization uh, has been doing and, and frankly um, has been doing even before that strategic plan uh, was implemented. Picking up on that, I think, outward facing piece. In my work, we hear time and time again that that adage that we can't change what we don't measure. And I think it underlies, in my view, an enthusiasm about using quality and measurement to promote equity, particularly by stratifying by important variables that can reflect existing inequities. But as I know, you know, there are so many potential ways to do that and many variables that we might consider. So I'm curious, how do you think about that approach of stratifying measures by important equity dimensions? And how can we implement this type of strategy in a way that accounts for these multiple dimensions? So um, you said a lot there, Josh, and, and, you know, I think that it's correct that that right now, I think we're in a moment where health equity finally has moved center stage in terms of a goal that every stakeholder in the healthcare ecosystem, whether it's payers, providers, purchasers, patient advocacy organizations, policymakers, everybody has their eyes focused on health equity. You know, in 2001, when the Institute of Medicine, now National Academy of Medicine, published its seminal report on crossing the quality chasm and named health equity as one of the six pillars of, of a high-performing health system, uh, that was one of six pillars, all six of which were embraced. But I think most of us would say that health equity really just kind of languished over, over the years from then until now. That's 21 years. Uh, languished from then until now um, as something that that was an aspiration, but nobody was really taking action. And now there there is clarity on the part of all these organizations that we need to take action. Uh, but as you say, the issue of measurement then comes uh, front and center because we have to think about um, how do we actually measure health equity and. Um, there are a number of ways that we can get at the measurement of health equity, but I think all of us agree that a place to start is with our existing measures of healthcare performance, whether those are measures of patient care experience, whether those are measures of the adherence to guidelines around screening for preventive care or chronic care management, stratifying those measures to see how are we doing with respect to equity what are the disparities that are there? And you ask, you know, by what variables should we stratify? We should stratify by all the variables for which we think there could be inequities and we're concerned about that. So we need to stratify by race and ethnicity. We need to stratify by age. We need to stratify by gender. We probably need to stratify by sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, we need to stratify by disability status, right? Any of the areas. Um, uh, region, you know, uh, rurality is is very important issue with respect to inequities and disparities in care. Um, and so one of the challenges that raises is, do we have the data that we need to stratify and actually understand how performance looks today uh, for 
different population subgroups? The answer in many cases, and quite specifically the answer with respect to race and ethnicity is no, we do not have systematically have those data today. And so much of our, our focus right now around health equity and, and many of the stakeholders that we're interacting with every day are hard at work thinking about to what extent can you use imputed data or proxies while you're building out the information on patient self-reported race and ethnicity data. How are you thinking about this idea of little versus big dot measures? This is something that I've benefited from in terms of hearing you share about the work. Um, and so for those who may be less familiar, what are little versus big dot measures? And as we kind of shift to paying for value more, how can this help us going forward as we think about quality measurement and equity? Mm. The um, big dot, the idea of big dot measures was a concept born out of some work that I was involved with, um, again, at the Institute of Medicine, in that case, uh, a committee that was developing um, recommendations around a core parsimonious measure set for the U.S. to use uh, in, in evaluating healthcare quality and its impact. Um, and then later in some work I was involved with, with the Healthcare uh, Payment Learning and Action Network, sometimes called the LAN. Um, and what it really refers to is, if you think about the measures that um, comprise NQF's core uh, endorsed um, measure set today, um, those are measures that have largely grown up out of fee-for-service payment. And as a result of that are largely process-oriented measures. Right, process measures are a kind of natural artifact of fee-for-service payment and fee-for-service thinking, right? You do a thing, you bill for that thing, we measure that thing. Um, and value-based payment really shifts us into a mindset around outcomes. And it's outcomes that we're really talking about when we think of big dot measures. Now, you and listeners are probably familiar with the idea of the triple aim uh, introduced by by CMS and and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation uh, when that was first created, and that triple aim um, is about um, cost, quality, and patient experience. Um, and so, in a sense, the the big dot measures that we might think of is ultimately if we could have a big dot measure for each of those. Um, that that would really be the the ultimate in big dot measures. And for cost, we do. In value-based payment contracts, we have a measure of total cost of care for a population. That is a quintessential big dot measure. Uh, we don't have anything like that for health um, or for quality or experience. Um, and so we go to um, sort of the next best thing uh, and and begin to develop measures that are outcomes for different areas of care. You may think of them as procedural outcomes or outcomes for patients with particular uh, conditions. You know, what are the outcomes that we're trying to achieve for patients with substance use disorder? What are the outcomes that matter to patients who have congestive heart failure? Those become the basis for big dot measures. And then the little dot measures, the process measures are things that don't necessarily have to be in those value-based contracts anymore, but rather used by the organizations who accept those contracts as a way to understand the inputs to the outcomes they're trying to achieve, 
they might track all those process measures on dashboards along with the outcomes to see how they're doing. But um, one of the, the great benefits, I think, of, of outcome measures, well, two, I'll name, one is that they help us get to more parsimonious measure sets. And that's been something that has been hotly demanded uh, for a long time, especially with value-based care contracts. When we're talking about population health, if you're going to measure based on process and you're going to have accountability from every, for everything from prenatal care to end-of-life care, on a process basis, that's a lot of measures. But if you're going to be measuring big dots or the outcome measures, it can be more parsimonious. And then importantly, the second thing that's so important about it is it can um, not be so prescriptive, right? It can allow those who are providing care to decide how are they going to achieve those outcomes, not just checking the box of a, a series of process measures, but delivering on the outcomes in the way that they think based on their clinical judgment and based on their understanding of patient behaviors and patients, you know, individual life circumstances, how to get there. Uh, so I hope that's a, a good and clear answer to your question about big dot and little dot. A very thoughtful answer. And I want to stay on this for a second because you've touched on something else that I think keeps coming back in my work and conversations with others, which is this idea of we want to know the mechanisms through which we achieve the outcomes we want, but also clinicians, organizations want flexibility, right? They don't want it to be prescriptive. And so I do think process measures have a role. They pro the role probably looks different than how they've been used historically. Do you think in a world that has more fleshed out and rigorous big dot measures that little dot measures then are not used in assessing performance? It's more back-end measuring activity, but not maybe used to assess financial and quality performance. Or do you think even in a more value-based world, we'll have a mix? of little and big dot measures together because of this tension that I feel around flexibility, mm. but also knowing mechanism? It's a very thoughtful question, Josh. And so I, I, I can share, you know, from my own experience and this, this really, I'm drawing um, less on my role leading NQF and more on the role that I've had in the private sector, uh, both on the executive team at Blue Cross Mass uh, as one of the architects of a payment model that shaped the ACL movement, and my role subsequent to that um, uh, at Haven and, and uh, on the purchaser side of the table. And um, so what I would say there is that I, I think we, we certainly, where we have um, process measures that correspond directly to an outcome, we should be retiring those process measures from our contracts and using the outcomes. We don't need to use both. Again, we don't need to be prescriptive about how to get to that outcome. And the process measures, if they are still useful to those who are in the contract to monitor their progress and understand what are the most important drivers of the outcomes that they're accountable for, that's fantastic. Does that mean that we will have contracts that entirely exclude process measures? I don't think so. Uh, because for example, um, preventive services, things like you know colorectal cancer screening, mammography screening, um, vaccinations for children. These are things where if we were to measure the outcomes, they're so far out. The things that we're preventing um, are so far out that the outcome measures, you know, just don't have a close enough correspondence with the process measures. And the process measures in many cases, including the ones I named, are so important to the health of the population that they should remain in our view. 
This is something that I, I hear from groups and parties in the community around things like social drivers of health and whether it's really possible to measure the outcomes in a contract that's maybe bounded by a year you know, or several performance mm -hmm. years. This is a great segue because the next thing I wanted to ask you about, and you've kind of addressed it in this little big dot uh, framework and what to retire and what not to do is I think we as a healthcare community often think about what do we need to do more? We've been inadequate in addressing equity when we think about quality and value. So we need to do X, Y, or Z. What do you think are things we need to undo or to remove, you know, to the extent that progress requires us to stop doing certain things? I think that this period of time with the pandemic has really um, showed us that we can free ourselves from the tyranny of the office visit and the idea that healthcare is something that happens inside of the four walls of a provider system. You know, we've known for decades that that's a very provider-centric way of delivering care, but we really didn't free ourselves from that um, until we had to because of COVID. Um, and I think that continuing to do that is a very, very important part of how we have to reimagine care. And I also, just to tie it back to our topic around equity, you know, part of why I am an advocate, a, a passionate champion for value-based payment and for payment reform is that I think that as we move to more outcomes-oriented accountability, that it forces those who are providing care to think outside the box of the clinical practice setting, the literal and figurative box of the clinical practice setting to where patients live and work. And it causes us to have to think about each individual patient and what stands in the way when they walk out the door or you know, disconnect <laughs> virtually from a televisit, what stands between them and success at keeping their blood pressure under good control, uh, avoiding the onset of diabetes if they're pre-diabetic, having a good outcome uh, for their child if they are pregnant. What are the, the barriers for that human being, that individual? And, you know, I would say in terms of things we have to undo, it's a one-size-fits-all way of thinking, you know, and um, uh, about care and thinking that if, if we do the same thing for everyone, that's equity. Um, that's not equity. You know, you've probably seen some of the wonderful visuals that show um, equality versus equity. Equity uh, really requires us to think about each individual human being and what would be required for that person to get uh, them to success on that, on that outcome measure, to get their blood pressure under good control, their hemoglobin A1C under good control, and so forth. Um, so I think that's some of what we have to undo is, is the kind of tyranny of the office visit and the thinking about um, a kind of one size fits all as, as the way that we're going to get to good outcomes. There are people that believe we're a bit, and there's a term that our prior guest has used around this idea of we're a chimera. We know a lot about processes and steps, the inputs into healthcare. There's a lot we don't know about what patients experience, what their goals are, how to get those measures you described just now under control, but also you know what, they, what, what that means for them in their life. And so curious your reaction to this idea of maybe we need to pare down and retire certain process measures we've used historically, but we need to allow a proliferation of measures in the area of experience uh, and equity. Your thoughts on that? I think the measures that are, are most missing uh, from, from our, our active measure sets today are measures on 
patient reported outcomes. And here again, I'll, I'll differentiate as I did in introducing myself between patient reported measures of health versus patient reported measures of care. Patient reported measures of care and care experience at this point, I think have become very well integrated into our national approach to measuring healthcare quality. Um, lots of folks have some, um, have a desire to get to a next generation of patient reported measures of care. But what we have very little of, little of and is so critically important is patient reported measures of health. Now, these are the measures that tell us how patients are feeling and how they're functioning. And they let us monitor how that's changing over time. And nothing could be more profoundly valuable to us in terms of developing the evidence base behind medicine than that, right? Tracking whether the things that we are doing are showing up in terms of what patients tell us about how they're feeling and how they're functioning. Did we solve their problem? Did we make it better? And we've had those measures for decades. They are a central part of clinical trials. When drugs are developed, when devices are developed, almost it's almost always the case that you need some of those measures in order to know whether your drug is having its desired effect or whether your device is having its de desired effect. But those measures have never really found their way into day-to-day -day clinical practice, save from you know, a few visionary organizations nation nationwide that do use patient report outcome measures or sometimes called PROMs systematically for care. And those organizations are you know, more patient-centered, are actually know what they're doing that's helping patients or not helping patients, and can also use this information to understand um, for a given patient in their circumstances, what treatment, what intervention is likely to help or not, and therefore to get the, the treatment choices right uh, the first time more often and to avoid wasteful or harmful uh, interventions. I wanna end with this. The basis for the work that I am doing and I hope to do in the coming years really is based on this idea that the intent of payment changes is to make healthcare better, but we can't do that if we sideline or make equity a secondary consideration. I also think that while not the only motivation, payment is an important driver of what happens in healthcare and, and therefore to achieve equity, we really need to bring payment into alignment with that. In 10 years, in the context of payment policy and with an eye towards equity, what will quality measurement look like and uh, what will have changed? I can't say that I, I know what things will look like in 10 years, but I'll share a little bit about what I, I hope. Um, and that is that we will have achieved a healthcare system that is delivering more equitable outcomes. We will not have terminal mortality rates that are threefold higher for Black women in America than for white women in America. We will not have the inequities in measure after measure after measure by race, ethnicity, age, gender, um, we will have really achieved greater equity. How will we achieve that is the question. Personally, I think that one of the really key things uh, to getting to that, to that place that I think is a spot on the wall that we can all agree on is that we need to be investing in health equity, um, not adjusting away differences um, in our performance measures. And what I mean by that is 
rather than adjusting for differences in performance based on things like race or ethnicity or social uh, drivers of health of any sort, that we rather would want to see investment, those provider organizations that care for populations that disproportionately have variables that make it harder to achieve good outcomes should receive either um, more funding uh, in, in recognition that it will take something more indifferent to achieve good results for that population and or should receive a higher level of reward for achieving a given level of outcome. So either a multiplier on the reward or some upfront um, funding that recognizes that you have to do different things in order to get the same results for certain population subgroups or both of those things together. But I think that by coming to grips with the fact that um, we don't know all of the little dots that add up to good outcomes and that many of those little dots are things that have to do with the environment that patients are living in, that doesn't excuse us as as um, care providers from attending to those things just because they're outside our four walls doesn't mean we're absolved from any need to ask about them and do what we can to attend to them. Um, but it, it does mean that we um, need to recognize that the, the little dots that will add up to good outcomes will be different based on individual circumstances. And that sometimes what's required to address those little dots is going to require a different level of investment in the those who are providing care to those patient subgroups. So where I hope we're getting to through our focus on health equity is health equity. How we're going to get there, I hope we'll get there by some, some investment in, in health equity rather than by um, adjusting for those differences um, in statistical ways. You know, I know this issue of accounting for social risk is um, actively debated, and um, and I appreciate your thoughtfulness and candor there. One of the things I'm taking away from our conversation today is quality is good, but we should think about it in a nuanced way around big dots and small dots, and what can we take away as we add patient reported is good, but patient reported measures of care versus uh, of health, really important distinction with social risk, even if we agree on that spot on the wall in the future, as you say, doesn't mean that there's just one way to get there. Dr. Dana Gelb-Saffron, thank you again for joining us on today's conversation. Thanks so much for having me. 